0: to the July 2017 edition of my book club. Uh, This month we read Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and this is a really interesting book. I picked it because not only is it a history of humankind that it actually tries to purport our earliest beginnings to our modern day, but it also does so in a very idiosyncratic way. We really get to see not just this is a list of the facts that happen as might happen in a textbook, But we see a very alternative viewpoint on many of the things that we take for granted. And Harari has a knack for taking things that we're maybe familiar with, or familiar with having been explained in a particular way, being described in a very different way. And so I found this book, even if you disagree with some of Harari's takes on particular ideas, I think it's a very compelling book because he forces you to look at the idea that many of the things that we consider commonplace Uh, maybe can be perceived in a different way. And the first one starts with the title itself. So the title is Sapiens, it's not humans. Why is it Sapiens? Well, it's Sapiens because in Harari's mind, humans is everything that belongs to this homogenous of uh, animals, which we tend to have this viewpoint of it was this linear sequence that, you know, there was cavemen and then they evolved into us and there was just a sequence of human beings and we were the kind of ultimate product. But this isn't true. Homo sapiens coexisted with a number of other human species on the earth for hundreds of thousands of years. And it was just that our dominance quite recently, over about 50,000 years ago, that we managed to extinguish all the other competitors, all the other human species. And there is a tendency to say, well, why was this? Why did we dominate? And think that, well, it's because we were actually smarter, that they were more ape-like and we were more human-like or possessing more noble qualities. But this may not be the case. Harari points out that uh, Neanderthals, if you look at the skull size, had larger brains than we did. Now, larger brains don't necessarily mean they're more intelligent, but of course we can't give a Neanderthal an IQ test. But it does point out the obvious problem that we tend to view that we were the most intelligent simply because we survived, but that might not be the case. It might be that some of these other human species were equally intelligent or maybe more intelligent, but they just were less able to compete against us. And so why did we survive? Well, Harari posits that the reason that sapiens are the only human species around right now is because we were able to coordinate on larger scales. Around 100,000 to 50,000 years ago, we entered what he calls the cognitive revolution. This is the first of three revolutions he talks in the book, the agricultural and scientific revolutions I'll talk about a little bit later. But this cognitive revolution allowed us to form more distant trade networks, it allowed us to create culture, it allowed us to have shared sort of abstract ideas that could coordinate our behavior. And he believes this was our sort of key advantage over these competing species is that, you know, maybe Neanderthals were more intelligent individually, but because they couldn't coordinate over larger distances and with strangers and with these shared myths and cultures and traditions, we were able to, over a short period of time, accumulate the ability to outcompete them. So, this was the first real revolution, and for a really long period, the majority of our history, we existed in this state of hunter gathering. And again, this is another flip of our intuitions. Many of us have this view of progress that we started out in this sort of you know, brutish and short, uh, to you the Hobbesian definition, brutish and short existence in nature. And then through civilization, we became more prosperous, we lived better lives, and there was this general progress until today where we're living at the zenith of our history. And Harari questions this as well. He believes that the agricultural revolution, which is the second revolution that he talks about in his book, when we stopped becoming nomadic bands of hunters and gatherers, and started to settle down and farm and have herds of animals and stay in villages and cities that this was actually humanity's biggest fraud this was something that it actually made our lives worse off until very very recently if you look at the evidence of stature it's clear that you know agriculturalists were you know had more malnutrition they lived worse than their hunter gatherers and they likely worked a lot harder they probably had to work you know, the eight to twelve hours that we expect in the field, whereas hunter-gatherers probably lived a pretty comfortable existence, you know, just working a little bit here and there. And this his idea, this myth of progress, well, why would we have voluntarily adopt a worse lifestyle? Wouldn't if there was the choice, the hunter-gatherers would said, out? no way, I don't want to do farming. I'd rather do this hunting and gathering thing, which is a lot easier and feeds me better, and this kind of thing. But what happens is because agriculture allows for just more food to be produced per unit area, that once some bands started switching to agriculture, they couldn't go back. They started to have more children, their population would expand, and then it wouldn't be possible to switch back to the previous lifestyle. And indeed, as long as some tribes or some bands of people started having agriculture, because they were more productive per unit of area they would push out the hunter gatherers so the hunter gatherers kept living on increasingly marginal areas of land which they were less suitable for uh, for uh, for farming or for agriculture and so this is a real interesting idea the idea that progress was inevitable that we couldn't undo it that we had to go in this direction but it also led to us being worse off and so this was the real big revolution and this happened about you know what 10,000 to 20,000 years ago, we had this Neolithic revolution and had agriculture, but it probably left the majority of people who experienced it worse off than the people who were, you know, just uh, 50,000 years earlier living in the world. Agriculture also changed the culture. It changed the kind of myths we had. We developed myths of hierarchy. Now that you could store resources, there were those that had and those that had not, and it was a much less egalitarian society than we were used to. It also became patriarchal. In the earlier hunter-gatherers, there was more of egalitarianism between the genders. And now in uh, agricultural societies, you typically see patriarchy. You typically see men ruling over women. And Harari brings up some possible explanations of why this can be. But ultimately, he's unsatisfied that we found the right answer for why this tended to be the mode that operated in earlier societies. We also see religions come up. So religions started to shape these ideas, and and Harari defines religion as a system of human norms and values that is founded on a belief in a superhuman order. So it was basically a way of getting rules and ethics and uh, codes of conduct for coordinating between strangers, between larger groups of people, and giving them some force, giving them some weight. If you believe, obviously, that there's some supernatural entity that will uh, evaluate your actions and punish you if if you're wicked, that will coerce you into behaving better in a society and being less selfish. He also talks about how in this period we invented money, and money is perhaps the most successful system of mutual trust ever devised, that it essentially depends not on me believing that money has value, that the value of money doesn't depend on me thinking that these cowrie shells or these pieces of paper, this shiny metal is valuable for me, but believing that other people will value it and that that's a stable belief. So even if I don't believe that gold is valuable, if everyone else in the world believes gold is valuable and they have things that I want that they would trade for gold, then for me it is valuable. And that becomes sort of a, a stable structure that allows for us to get things that we want, even if we can't do a one-to-one bargain. So if, you know, I'm selling deer hides and someone else is selling shovels and I don't want a shovel but I need to you know, get something from someone else who wants a shovel, money works really well as a medium of exchange and it survives on this system of mutual trust that is essentially one of these myths, one of these ideas that we collectively imagine. Another idea he brings up is that there were the development of polytheistic religions, religions that had multiple deities and we tend to view these as being more primitive, they're associated with paganism and they were replaced with superior monotheistic religions like Christianity or Judaism or Islam. And his idea is that it is quite possible that these polytheistic religions were more tolerant than the monotheistic ones that dominate today and far from being the, you know, the idea that they were primitive uh, savage religions, they might have been, to our today's standards, more enlightened in some ways. And he, he really, I think, a lot of times points out that while we tend to see ourselves as living in an age of reason, sort of a break from the Dark Ages where it was dominated by superstition and tradition and now we live in this enlightened era, that he really believes that these myths and religions and philosophies continue to dominate today, uh, we just label them differently which gives us a distinction compared to all those earlier previous false ones that we tend to discredit. So in his belief The current today's religion is humanism. And there's different types of humanism, but they all essentially worship humanity instead of supernatural deities. So uh, in liberalism, we worship the individual. The individual is what's sacred, it's what has human rights and individual value and what cannot be defiled. In the socialist or communist fusion, it's the... It's the worship of the collective class so that it's, you know, the struggle of the working class against the ruling class and that it is this class solidarity that matters. In the evolutionary, what he calls, or you could also say kind of the eugenics version, we worship the sort of Uberman, the the idealized version that could be defiled by, you know, impure races or impure genetics. And that these current religions, these humanistic religions, were really what has dominated over the last hundred or so years uh, and led to the world wars and these kind of things, just as the earlier monotheistic religions led to the crusades in times before. And this leads us to our third big revolution, which is science. So this big revolution was that we now had a way of getting the kind of progress that maybe the agricultural revolution we saw as being the beginning, but really progress only really started um, and it was perhaps negative before that until the scientific revolution. And he thinks that the big invention of the scientific revolution was the discovery of ignorance. That what dominated the scientific revolution wasn't sort of all this new knowledge coming in about, but realizing how much that we don't know. And he points out that you start seeing maps that have big blank areas in them that there's parts that aren't filled in yet because we know that there's something we don't know and that idea that we know that there's something that we don't know is quite powerful and he, as he posits maybe was not something that was properly appreciated until that time um, and it obviously talks a lot more about the history of science and how it developed he also talks about capitalism, and he believes this is capitalism. Consumerism is our most successful of the philosophies. While he talks about how, you know, Buddhists very frequently didn't live up to Buddhist ideals, and Confucians didn't live up to Confucianist ideals. We do live up to our capitalist consumerist ideals, which is that money matters, and that uh, the acquisition of more. And you know, that might not just be more things. It might not just be fancy cars and jewelry. It might even just be experiences. It might be having more travel or seeing more plays or experiencing more things. This acquisition of more in your life is the thing to be striving after, the thing to be valued. And so I think that's also an interesting critique as well because very often we're splitting a thread that uh, Harari lumps together. So a common theme in the book is that we'll talk about, well, people before did it like this and we do it like this now. And Harari has a way of merging those together and say, well, it's actually kind of the same. We're all doing it this way. And so this sort of consumerist ethic, many people would like to supplant it with, well, you know, it's not that money and possessions matter, but it's uh, experiences that matter. So that you should, you know, watch more movies, read more books, travel more places. And he points out that this is really just another variant of that same consumption philosophy towards life that the key to living well is to consume more and more varied experiences. And uh, he he goes into talking about Buddhism. Harari is uh, somewhat of a Buddhist. He practices a lot of Buddhist things and it's clear in the book that he gives kind of a special feeling towards Buddhism in his description of philosophies and religions. And he talks about how in many cases the way that these religions or these Buddhist philosophies have been interpreted in the West have gotten kind of a uh, a weird slant that they've been reinterpreted in our current liberal terms in that the Buddhist critique of consumerism is that well you know it's not the external world that matters it's sort of your internal feelings that are what matters that if you're happy on the inside that's really what matters and uh, he really argues the opposite he says that you know what actually if you look at Buddhism what it was arguing is that that's the complete opposite of what the Buddha said that the Buddha said that um, these feelings that we have are so fleeting and ephemeral that that can't be the thing that you base your happiness on and true happiness is to not be swayed by those things. So uh, to quote him here he says this idea is so alien to modern liberal culture that when western new age movements encountered buddhist insights they translated them into liberal terms thereby turning them on their head. New age cults frequently argue that happiness does not depend depend on in external conditions it only depends on what we feel inside. People should stop pursuing external achievements such as wealth and status and connect instead with their inner feelings. And it, he says this is more or less the opposite of what the Buddha actually argued. And so I think if you look at this whole history of what he's talking about from start to finish, it's really a revision or a reimagining of a lot of things that we've been taught to believe in a particular way. For instance, we're taught to believe in the myth of progress, the idea that things are always getting better and that we started in this crude existence and we are now living in a golden era. And what Ferrari suggests is at the very least, we may be living through a dip, that there was a period of a golden age kind of earlier when we were hunter-gatherers and there was a long period of decline or, or subsistence or more meager existence as agriculturalists and only now maybe we're surpassing that because of industry. But it definitely raises the question of what's going to happen in the future and maybe there will be another inevitable change that will come that will end up leaving us worse off. The other things he changes our ideas about is the idea of myths in a larger term, meaning that how much of what we consider to be true or factual are these ideas that don't really have a concrete physical existence but exist in our shared collective understandings. And so he uses them not in a derogatory way, not to say that myths are false, but to point out that we have all these ideas that maybe aren't strictly true on their facts or strictly true in an objective sense. So I highly recommend reading this book. I barely did it justice in this extremely brief uh, summary. If you want to get the book, I highly recommend it. It's very dense, lots of good ideas, especially if you are not aware of some of the things that I mentioned in this uh, summary It might be something worth reading. Now I'm going to transition to a conversation I recorded a little earlier with James Clear of jamesclear.com who also read the book and participated in this month's book club. And we talk about the ideas, particularly focusing on myths and this idea that we live in a society where a lot of what we take for granted may not be objectively true and meaning grounded in objective physical evidence. So I appreciate that and now enjoy my conversation with James Clear. Well, I'm very excited to have James Clear. He is the author of jamesclear.com, where he writes about habits and personal development and really just excellent articles that I I highly recommend. I'm I'm really looking forward to having him here with me to discuss uh, our July book, which is Yuval Harari's Sapiens, or uh, I've also heard it said Sapiens. So I think uh, I'm going to go with Sapiens here, but pronunciation-wise, you might disagree. Um, This is a really interesting book, and I think... A big reason that it was interesting for me is that, you know, even if you've read a lot of history or biology and you kind of know some of the stuff that he's talking about in the history of humanity, he has a very unique perspective that he applies to it. So he looks at a lot of issues that we're kind of conditioned to look at in one way. And then he sort of flips it around and talks about it in another way. So one of the big things he talks about is that the title of the book is Sapiens, and he's using it. To distinguish the fact that in our early history, there were multiple, as he calls them, human species around. There was the Neanderthals, there was the Florentians, there was a lot of different uh, human species happening at the same time. And now, of course, there are only us, there are only the sapiens. And so our, our sort of whole history is also this idea that there were these other human-like creatures, or as he calls them, humans, uh, around in our early period, and we often think of them as other or different from ourselves. And he says that, you know, maybe we should be considering them as being kind of the same as us, and we just happen to surpass them. Um, you know, what do you think about this idea, James?
1: Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to join you. And um, I also found the book fascinating. Harari is, he's very interesting in the way that he frames issues, the way that he talks about things. Um, he does a really good job of looking at things from a new angle. Um, the, you know, the the core idea that he kind of lays out about there being these shared myths that we have, these collective stories and narratives that we all agree upon. It was the first time that I had heard it phrased that way. Um, and I, I thought it was very interesting to talk about how Homo sapiens are perhaps the only species that can talk about things or collaborate around things that we've never held or touched or smelled. We have these... You know religions and capitalism and money and so on all these myths in his language are these shared stories that we agree upon um i love thinking about laws as one example so you know like why do we all stop at a stop sign or a red light and we stop there because we've all agreed upon we've decided like there are certain laws of the road and that we will adhere to those and so our ability to collectively agree upon this shared myth or this story allows us to have roads and cities that function in an orderly fashion there's nothing necessarily fundamental about that in the sense that like, it's not a fundamental law of the universe, the way that I would drop a ball and it's going to fall regardless of whether someone agrees with it or not. Um, and uh, that's just one example of, of some of the, the interesting ideas that he shares.
0: Well, I think to continue that, because I think again, and we were talking about this a little bit prior to recording the call that he uses the word myth. And I think rhetorically this works very well because it, it highlights the idea that this is not something that kind of exists in a real objective sense. Um, it's not something that, like, um, like I'll give a, a really good example. I don't know whether it's in this book, but I've heard it talk before. But uh, the fact that uh, George Washington was the first American president is pretty uncontroversial. <laughs> I think most people would agree there's all this writing that supports the idea that he was the first American president. But this would be exactly the kind of myth that Harari is talking about, which can sound a little bit inflammatory. Like, how could it be a myth that George Washington is, was president? And it's not to point out the idea that there's some conspiracy that, you know, really it was some lizard person who was the first president of the United <laughs> States, but really to point out the idea that the whole concept of president and United States is a kind of shared collective um, idea. That there's nothing physical in terms of like, you know, matter that specifies a president or specifies the United States, they're just shared ideas that we have about this. And so I think that this is very interesting because by calling these kind of myths, these sort of shared collective ideas, he's not really trying to say that, oh, these are superstitions and we need to cast them off, but really that this is our great strength, perhaps, as a species, that we have the ability to coordinate on all these sort of imaginary or, imaginary is maybe not the right word, but all these kind of shared fictions or shared created realities uh that are not necessarily like tied down to some kind of uh, materialist account of the world
1: yeah i think uh harari says something along the lines of an imagined reality is not a lie if the entire group believes it and it's it's sort of like that right like there, the concept of a president is it is not true in the fundamental sense of you know being a physical law of the universe or something but it is true and shared if the group agrees upon it. And I actually think this is maybe one of my uh, little points of contention with the book is the use of the word myth in that way. I kind of wish he would have used story or shared narrative or collective agreement or something like that uh, to describe it. I My mom actually was really annoyed by his example of saying the Declaration of Independence was a myth, which I think is... In his language is definitely true. He's pointing out how it's untrue in the sense that it, you know, doesn't exist in the physical world. And it's a contract that we've agreed upon if we live in America and so on. Um, But she took that to be offensive as if it was like the Declaration of Independence didn't exist or people didn't actually get together in a room 200 years ago and write it. Um, But that's not what he means at all. Um, But I can see where the use of the word myth or fantasy, um, it causes some people to question or maybe even, uh, shy away from his main point simply because of the, the confusion of the language. Um, but overall, I think that his his uh, primary thesis there is definitely true and one of the primary things that separates us from all other
0: animals on the planet. So I completely agree. I think, um, again, it, it, it can be sometimes... And I find this when I'm writing and I'm trying to express a concept that doesn't have like a clear predefined word in English that means to all people exactly what I'm talking about often because I'm trying to, you know, maybe point out a, an idea that some people haven't thought of before and I, I want to coin a word. And so sometimes I'll use a word in a little bit of, let's say, an idiosyncratic way and then I'll have someone come up and be like, but yes, but this word means means X and it's like, but how am I supposed mm-hmm. to talk about this idea if I don't, you know, create a word for it? So I think, I think it's important when we talk about myths that Harari's idea of a myth is exactly this. It is something that is um, what, uh, so another way I've heard it defined is there's objective facts. So this could be something like, you know, like the Earth's existence or the sun or these kind of things. There are subjective facts, things that are maybe just true to the individual. So like, I like the color green or something like that. And then there are intersubjective facts. So there are facts that Um, they're, they're objective to each individual person, but they don't reside in like a concrete manifestation in physical reality. And these intersubjective facts, like the presidency of the United States being something that if no one had any concept of a president or the United States, it would be meaningless. It wouldn't point to anything physical, um, is some, something kind of this kind of fact. And it may in fact be the majority of facts that we talk about are these kind of intersubjective facts that depend on Uh, you know, they don't exist in some way that if there were no human beings on earth, that would still be a sensical thing to say.
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that? So like you just said, for example, perhaps the majority of facts that we talk about fall into that category. And I I find myself wondering like what the percentage is, you know, so ever since we started creating these these shared myths, these stories, uh, ever since the cognitive revolution, so probably like 50 to 70,000 years ago, We've been coming up with religions and then political systems and capitalism and agreeing upon how much, you know, a piece of paper is worth, if it's a dollar or whatever. And all of these stories, um, they make up a very large portion of our life. So humans, ever since this, you know, this storytelling has began, have been living kind of in a dual reality. We live in the physical world uh, where we, you know, the things we touch, we sit on, we feel, we eat, we see And then we live in this imagined reality this reality that we share collectively together through these stories and it's interesting to think about how much of our lives are are made up from either and i don't know that anybody could give you an exact percentage but it is i think definitely true that as time has gone on we have continued to shift more and more toward this imagined reality um and there are you know technologies now that are even getting us closer to that i mean if you know, virtual reality headsets or something along those lines becomes so pervasive throughout the society. Like I, I recently heard about a, a VR headset where you could, if you wanted to go see a soccer match, you could wear it and you could effectively like go onto the field and like watch from the field as the players are running around you. Um, and if the technology got to that point where it felt so real, um, I don't know, it's just, it's interesting to think about. We have already for thousands, tens of thousands of years, been blurring the line between physical reality and imagined reality. And the trend, at least historically, is that we're moving even more that direction, which, of course, naturally makes you wonder how much of our lives will end up in this imagined reality. And for something, for a human species, for any living organism, something that is so physical, um, how much of us can become imagined without us losing the core essence of who we are? And um, I'm not sure what the answers are to those questions, but I find myself
0: curious about that after thinking through Harari's argument more. Definitely. I think, you know, we were talking about what's the percentage of these imagined facts. And, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, it's hard for me to think of facts that don't have any dependency on some kind of, um, as Harari calls them, myths, but I would call them kind of like these intersubjective facts that even things that I'd be talking about that are highly physical, like you know um like the oceans or the the stars or the sun they are in certain senses we've kind of clumped some like some matter that exists under this kind of conceptual header of like this is this named thing and not to say that that's not a useful way of categorizing but it he does point out i think that um that's sort of what human brains do is that we kind of invent these concepts or we invent these ideas Um, that may closely tie to reality. They may be somewhat representational in that way, or they may not hew to reality at all. They might just be a completely kind of abstract idea, and that these shared abstractions were very good at coordinating on them, so good that even, like, again, when you said, when you point out that, you know, the Declaration of Independence, when it starts talking about, you know, the existence of human rights, and it's sort of saying, like, Well, human rights aren't like a physical thing. They're just like an idea that we have um, that Mm -hmm. people get angry when you point that out. Um, One thing I thought was really great was his section about money because he he basically, I'll, I'll quote him right here. He says, money is accordingly a system of mutual trust and not just any system of mutual trust. Money is the most universal and most efficient system of mutual trust ever devised. And what I thought was very interesting is he said that, like, this the power of money is that money works uh, because you believe other people value it. You don't need to value it yourself, you just need to believe that other people value it so that you can get the things that you really want from people in that. And it was interesting because this is like a real, you know, turn your head around kind of idea. And I remember when I, I wrote a little piece about this, uh, mentioning this idea, and I got some economists writing back because like, oh, you've fallen into the old trap of uh, thinking that, you know, the U.S. dollar is just uh, fiat currency. And, you know, that like you're like one of those gold bugs, basically, that believes that we need to go back to the old days of backing it on gold. Like, really, the money is based on, you know, all sorts of U.S. debt and securities. But I think that kind of missed my point because those U.S. debt securities are also this kind of intersubjective reality. If we didn't, if I didn't believe in the U.S. and the debt the U.S. holds, then of course the money doesn't have any value. So the, right. the thing is, is not really how that pointing out that there are these myths is not that they're super fragile or that, oh, it's just whatever you want or it's just all pretend or make-believe, but the idea of how strong a reality that it creates, like how... Uh, how almost everything we interact with is based on this reality that essentially just exists as a ledger inside people's heads. It's not, um, you know, you can't point to the world and say, you know, there's, there's the president of the United States. You can point to maybe some, you know, bag of biochemicals and say, this is a person and this, you know what I mean? But all these ideas um, are just essentially things that we've agreed on and we've done it so well that uh, it's hard to avoid.
1: Yeah, I think there are two points that, that you brought up that I want to touch on. The first about uh, human rights, for example, I think that's also a confusion that, that kind of gets um, multiplied or magnified a little bit by his use of the word myth. I think people naturally assume if it's a myth or if it's untrue in the, the fundamental sense, then that must mean that it's bad or something, um, because we often talk about you know myths and lies in the same sentence. But Harari is, at least to the best of my knowledge, not trying to make that argument. He's not saying that uh, the myth or the story of human rights is bad or morally or ethically uh, right or wrong. Um, and that, I think, confounds the... It, 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 it's understandable, but it also makes it a little bit harder for some people to get on board because they think that he's somehow knocking something when what he's really just saying is that it's a shared story. Um, but the the money one is so interesting because it really is, it's this incredibly deeply rooted story where to the point where if I, if I decide to not believe that a dollar is worth a dollar, the rest of you don't care. You're like, whatever, fine. Like we all still agree upon it. it whereas many other um, stories that we tell, if one person chooses to check out that you know, it causes you to question it a little bit. Um, but that story is so... There's so much collective cultural evidence that uh, we choose to continue to believe in it, even if we start to get a little bit of evidence to the contrary, um, which is also just so outlandish to even think of someone not thinking that, you know, that money would be worth something. Um, it is really interesting. It's almost as if I've actually taken to, to thinking this a little bit after reading it, that capitalism, um, of which money is, of course, a very central concept, capitalism is perhaps the most successful religion, uh, that the world has ever seen. It's the religion that basically everyone agrees upon, um, regardless of what your actual spiritual religion is or is not pretty much. Everybody agrees that you should work and earn money and have a career and have a job. Um, we have all bought into this shared myth together. Um, and it makes up the very fabric of our culture. The vast majority of our lives are spent working and it's, uh, if we talk about what percentage of our lives are these imaginary concepts versus these physical realities um it is interesting to see just how much of our time on this planet is spent living out the imagined realities that we agree upon like capitalism and money
0: yeah i i uh, i just recently read this book um called the tree of knowledge it's a little bit of an older book and it was the first book that kind of introduced this uh this is a view of cognitive science called inactivism. and. To be honest, I still haven't fully wrapped my head around it. So maybe there's some like philosophical heavyweights that are listening to this podcast that are going to disagree with my contentions about it. But as I understand the viewpoint, it is a viewpoint that is essentially that um, a lot of philosophers had the idea that the human brain is essentially representational, that like it takes kind of stuff from a reality and uh, represents it inside your brain and then does stuff with it. And that's what thinking is. And this inactivist view is that that's wrong, that like what is the essential character of the brain is not to represent things in the world, but to create the world, to enact it. So to create this world that exists and the reason it's so stable and perpetual is that it is a shared uh, hallucination in this way. And again, I think this is a going again to Harari's point that it's very easy to go um, to go the opposite end. So when I say something like, you know, this is a myth or this is a convention or an intersubjective truth, there is that slippery slope to be that, well, that just means that it's just nonsense or it's just fake. And I think that's the opposite of the implication you should get. It's more that how do we have such great coordination with reality, such great um, abstractions for dealing with things that are so useful and so stable and so easily agreed upon, despite the fact that you know, you can't really point to some really concrete thing that says, okay, this is what encodes that um, and makes that uh, true regardless of the observer. And so, I don't know, I feel like um, this book was just almost, it, like he does a lot of other things in this book. We've spent about, you know, 15 minutes talking just about this point because I think it's such a, such a deep idea.
1: Yeah, you know, what you said there about um, <laughs> so many people agreeing upon these things, is upon these, these shared stories, it's, it's kind of startling when you think about it, like just how much of, you know, we hear about the news cycles and what's wrong with the world and the disagreements that we have, but it 99.999% of things go smoothly and fine. It's, it's actually remarkable that billions of people can collaborate on such a level as we do. Um, and that, you know, containers of shipments can go across the the seas and that air, thousands of airplanes can, take off and land every day, and that cities with millions of people can function in relative peace and order and harmony day in and day out uh, is a testament to how strong these these shared stories are. And one of the other interesting insights that I kind of had or thought as I was reading this about, about all this is that you naturally think then that, oh, well, because all of these billions of people are collaborating effectively, that must mean that we are progressing. But then Harari actually turns around and talks about how during the agricultural revolution, which, you know, so like 50, 70,000 years ago, we have a cognitive revolution. All these stories start, all these myths start to be spread and shared. Humans begin to collaborate and live in larger tribes and groups. And then the agricultural revolution starts and we can finally, for the first time, start to farm food and live in a, a collective society and live in larger groups. And you would think, oh, this is great. This is productive. We're moving toward civilization. We're moving toward cities and kingdoms and countries. And um, and look at what we have today with technology. But uh, he lays out a very interesting argument that, in fact, the life of the average hunter-gatherer, where perhaps you forage for berries for an hour or two a day, and maybe the men run off and like hunt and kill an animal or something and bring it back, and the tribe is eating together, that life in that um, in that time period, in that, uh, in that lifestyle, was perhaps better, more relaxing, less stressful than the backbreaking work of plowing the field for eight hours every day and, um, you know, continually tilling the land and living through winters and trying to save enough grain so that you could feed the whole village. And that perhaps agric- agricultural life was actually worse, even though there were more people around, which is an interesting thing to think about. And actually, Reminds me a little bit of uh, Derek Parfit, uh, the philosopher. He has a, a concept where uh, he calls it the repugnant conclusion. And it's essentially if you could have, say, you had a thousand people living at a certain standard of life. And then the question is, well, what if you could have, you know, 1,500 people that live at a slightly lower standard? Not much, just like, say, 90% of what you could live at before. Well, most people would say, well, it'd be better to have more people to be able, you know, like 500 more people get to live, 500 people get to um, be, you know, have a life and share love and happiness and the, the whole, all the experiences that we get on earth. But of course, the repugnant conclusion of that is that, well, you should just continue that trend until you drive everybody almost all the way down to zero, where you're just getting just enough to subsist, but the population is massive. And in a way that kind of is what Harari is showing happens with the agricultural revolution, where we don't live in these small tribes anymore. We don't just have 10 or 15 or 50 people. Maybe we can support 500 or 1,500 or 15,000. But perhaps the quality of life declines in certain respects um, for those, that larger population, which is just a a fascinating thing to think about that kind of flies in the face of humanity is continually progressing.
0: Well, that's, uh, that's the essential kind of Malthusian trap. You could say that, um, you know, I think, believe it was Thomas Malthus had, uh, this big idea that, you know, because people will sort of continue to breed until the resources are all consumed like rabbits or something like that, that, The essential human condition is not one of prosperity, but one of subsistence, that we'll never be able to escape that. And the irony is that as he was writing those words shortly after, it was, you know, the biggest boom, like the biggest opposite trend in human history that, you know, we suddenly have this wildly expanding population. We go from, you know. Uh, you know, less than a billion people to like almost eight billion people over a few hundred years, and everyone's living standards are going up dramatically. Even though there are like hiccups along the way, obviously there's famines and problems and stuff going on in the world. But just th- this this logic that he presented, which seems so ironclad, was to be undone so shortly afterwards. And I don't know about the future for that. I think that if we're talking about today's period of time, we're definitely more prosperous. Um, on the kind of objective measures you can talk about, whether that makes us more happy is is a really a debatable question because it really depends on what you think matters for human uh, thriving. But just in terms of how much food we have to eat, how much you know our ability to have children, all these kinds of things, we're better off than probably both our pre-industrial and kind of pre-agricultural um, uh, other uh, human beings in history. But I think definitely the idea that there was a kind of uh, a only one-way direction of going from this sort of hunter-gatherer to agrarian societies wherever that was possible, and that that led to kind of an irrevocable change of human society in possibly a negative direction in a way that made it worse off for most people, uh, that's, that's very unsettling. And so it definitely leaves open the question that whatever, whatever the new age that we transcend to, you know, when this one runs out and there's the next one that comes along, there's a good possibility that it won't be, you know, it will be worse than it is right now. And and it may also be inevitable. It may not be something that, you know, whenever we talk about AI or biomedical research or any kind of new technological innovation, there's always this sort of implicit assumption that, well, if we can see it coming, you know, we can take steps as a society to prevent it. But if you look at what he talks about the agricultural revolution, it would have been almost impossible to stop it because all it takes is one small group starting agriculture and then, you know, having a larger population and then you can't go back. And then that thing, that population, even if it's worse off, if it outcompetes the hunter gatherers per unit of area, they've got stronger military power and that kind of thing. Then the only hunter gatherer tribes are left are the places that the, you know, herdsmen and farmers don't want to be, which is kind of where you, where you see the current world or where you would have seen the world, Um, you know, uh, thousands of years ago. And so I I wonder about that as well, that will the next transition in human history be a positive one? And even if we can detect what's going to happen, would we be able to to forestall it? Yeah,
1: it's interesting. I find myself thinking, um, you know, so... Clearly, I've heard things like, for example, the, you know, the average uh, American lives at a higher standard of living than the king of France in the 17th century or something like that, right? This idea of, of progress and we have, and I think largely many of those statements are true, but I find myself thinking not only today, but, you know, even during this agricultural revolution, well, certainly for the person who was like, say, the, you know, the tribal leader or the, you know, whoever was in charge of these, these larger groups of 10 or 100 or 1000 people, um, life would probably be quite good for them. They got to sit around and make decisions now instead of having to go hunt and gather food. And for the, you know, the people on the lower rungs of society, they were the ones who were having to do the farming and so on. And I think what has allowed humankind to continue to progress over uh, over the following centuries is that we have gradually and increasingly been able to offload more and more of that work to technology. And so perhaps it's up at some point we, you know, right now we have the bottom billion in the world or who live on a dollar a day or less or so. And it it kind of, you know, it it almost, it makes me very uncomfortable to think about how much of my lifestyle do I owe to those people? How much of the luxuries that I get on a daily basis are actually me getting to live out the productivity and the backbreaking work that somebody else is doing that I'm just removed or separated from the same way that a tribal leader in the agricultural revolution was separated from the peasants doing the farming. And, uh, and I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is, but perhaps there's some hope there that if we can offload as much of that to machines as possible and to get technology to do the work without, you know, killing ourselves or derailing society in the process, um, that maybe all humans can not only have a larger society and more of us can live, but also at, at a global, Higher standard across the board, which is, you know incredibly aspirational to think about. Uh, I'm not sure how practical or uh, or feasible it is in in uh, you know, in realistic terms, but um, it's at least makes me a little bit hopeful that perhaps we can bypass some of the errors that we made in the past.
0: Well, this is something I guess we could talk about, taking again this idea from Harari's book of uh, illustrating this myth of progress, which is very much a part of how we think about things. And I think you raised two points that I want to address. The first point is, um, do we know what is the sort of ingredients for human flourishing? And I think there's kind of two perspectives on it. One of them is that, like, we obviously do, and it's just kind of the like weird postmodern relativists that would deny otherwise that, like, obviously it's better to not be starving, to live, you know, without uh, a coercion, and like these things are obviously good. It's better to have, you know, people who love you and these kind of things. Uh, In your life, and so like the whole scorn on modern society is perhaps ill placed. That's sort of one view, and then the other view is that well, we have all these ideas um, about what is the sort of ingredients in human flourishing. And you said yourself that capitalism or this idea of economics or kind of economic thinking is is one of these big abstract shared realities that we have. In that, well, we're a lot richer. We have more access to things. But maybe that turns out to not be the thing that really matters for people being happy. And we don't know what is the thing that makes people happy. And we're kind of building ourselves based on this uh, philosophy that might turn out to be empty. Um, The other idea you were talking about is sort of how do we feel about the future? And I kind of have two thoughts of that. I would say in the short term, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think, you know, as you said, uh, there is the worry, of course, that living in a developed country that you are... Um, you know, sort of living your luxurious lifestyle on the backs of the people who are, you know, doing hard labor and doing this kind of stuff. And I do think that that may be partially true, but there's also a real truth that much of our prosperity has not come from, you know, the kind of feudalistic notion of mobilizing labor, but through technology that, you know, China becoming a much richer country hasn't directly impoverished the majority of Americans, maybe some Americans that worked in manufacturing that got competed, it has. But, China becoming a richer country also means that China buys more stuff from America. They're buying iPhones and doing these kind of things, employing people in Silicon Valley. So there is a sort of positive cycle there. And that makes me optimistic in the short term for human society. What I'm more agnostic about is we're, you know, we're in this kind of, maybe you could say kind of an industrial era or an information era. I don't know exactly. You, You can't really carve up the eras while you're in one, but There's probably going to be another era that comes after this. It might be because of technological change, like we might have AI or, you know, genetic engineering or something that creates a fundamental different kind of economic system that will come next. It could be because of crisis. It could be because of global warming or nuclear war or something that creates a catastrophe that we have to live through as well. And there's lots of science fiction concepts about all these realities, but I think what interested me about this book is just the idea that we may be inevitably heading into whatever phase comes next. And it's not its not obviously true that just because it's inevitable that it will be positive, that we may be inevitably going into some phase that leaves everyone worse off, and there's no way to stop it from happening, just as it was probably true for the hunter-gatherers that existing hunter-gatherers did not want to sit around and farm and you know just eat the same monocrop all the time and be malnourished and have to worry about Famine and stuff. They wanted to just kind of work a couple hours a day, do some hunting, you know, play some music, have rituals. Uh, but once you have a certain population that requires, you know, fixed agriculture, they didn't have a choice. And if they did decide not to do that, the neighboring farming communities would probably have hunted them down or taken their land or, or something, just as we've seen in history so i wonder about the future of what's going to happen and whether you know it's going to be in the long term whether it's going to be a positive change or maybe a negative one
1: yeah it's uh it's not the most uplifting part of the book to think about but it is interesting that yeah i mean largely at least i mean we are able to have this conversation on you know wonderful technology and live with a lot of privileges in our life but and so it makes me wonder how um how adept we are at assessing our current situation but leaving that aside i think we can look at the the historical trend and say that as history has gone on i don't i don't necessarily know that well-being has increased for everyone it's definitely increased for the victors um of any given war or political battle or um uh revolution but is it better for everyone And I'm not sure. I I think there are many measures that would say yes, like there's less violence in the world, the GDP is increasing, people have access to more resources than ever before, um, productivity is going up. So in a lot of ways, it would seem so. The one that is is still a large question mark, and Harari raises this in a couple different ways as well, is happiness. And part of that uh, is... It's perhaps, you know, we don't know what leads to happiness, or as you said, we don't know what leads to human thriving. But I think a lot of it is also the problem that happiness is often relative to the people around you. There are a variety of psychological studies that have looked at this. But even even if all of those markers of productivity and well-being have increased for centuries and we are living in the most prosperous time in history, we are also surrounded by peers who are living in the most prosperous time in history. And much of our happiness is judged relative to our neighbors next door and the people that we work with each day and uh, those that we watch online and get our information from. And so we judge our happiness, uh, in comparison to theirs rather than in comparison to our ancestors, a hundred or 500 or a thousand years ago. And, um, if that is true, if that, if it is true that happiness has a large relative component, then human beings might be able to progress infinitely, but not, but never progress, uh, substantially in their levels of happiness. And who's to say what percentage, uh, that relative comparison makes up of happiness. And, you know, many different philosophies ascribe to this idea that Happiness should be something that's internal and that we should leave comparison aside. Uh, but I think we all know that that's uh, easier to say and much harder to actually do. But uh, but I do find myself thinking about how we can progress so rapidly and so exponentially across one variable, but perhaps uh, the growth of happiness or even the decline is on a completely different uh, set of axes. You
0: know, it's something uh, I was looking for right before the thing to find a quote, but I couldn't find it. And uh, Harari was talking a little bit about um, Buddhism in this context and particularly the kind of Western interpretation of that. And interestingly enough, Harari, I did a little bit of research on him before I read the book. And uh, it turns out that there, I don't know how many people who are listening to this have heard of this before, but there are these uh, meditation retreats that are associated with Buddhism called Vipassana retreats where they teach a particular kind of meditation. It's not particularly religious. Uh, Buddhism is kind of unusual for religion as being a little bit more philosophy than religion. But there's certainly a lot of elements of that and how it's practiced in Asia. But I think um, what's interesting is that, you know, some people do these 10-day Vipassana retreats where they go there and they sit in silence and they're taught how to meditate and they're supposed to just kind of observe, you know, their body and their consciousness and their breathing and that kind of thing. And Harari, I've been told this does every year, he does a two-month Vipassana retreat. So he is, you know, going out and spending two months not talking to anyone, just doing this kind of internal self-reflection. So I think that maybe also pays into his viewpoint, not only the fact that he, you know, spends so much time in this kind of meditative state, which is kind of forces you, I think, to look at things in a non-conventional way. And then second, also his a, a fit affination for uh, for. Buddhism also makes him kind of interesting because you know, he's seeing things from maybe a, a not entirely Western perspective. And one of the things I found interesting, which I couldn't find the quote for, which was about Buddhism, was uh, his idea that a lot of people have taken this kind of, you know, money is what matters and social status and all these kinds of things that are part of kind of our collective myths or our collective intersubjective, truths although they're certainly a lot more contentious than some of the other ones we were talking about and they've kind of replaced them with the idea that well what matters is your sort of internal well-being your happiness which is what you were talking about like being happier and this kind of thing and he said that the insight of buddhism wasn't that you know well it your material well-being isn't what matters your happiness is what matters but interesting he says is that also your happiness isn't what matters and i think that's very interesting because (laughs) i think a lot of people if you talk to them and you would say, oh, you know, money isn't everything. Like, that's like what, you know, the classic thing you say. money. Oh, money can't buy happiness or money isn't everything. And those people agree with you. But if you were to say to those people, well, you know what? Happiness is everything or happiness is the thing that really matters, or at least the most important thing. Um, you know, I think you would be hard pressed to find someone who's not an extreme nihilist or at least someone who maybe doesn't have like a, like a worship of some other, you know, object, like maybe they don't think happiness matters, but they think doing good matters or do, you know, or they think what matters is doing X or Y. And just to have hear that being said, that kind of the thing that seems most precious to you maybe is itself kind of another shared delusion that we have that like happiness is the thing to be improving and that happiness is a intelligible concept that we've created and not another one of these shared myths is something, um, something very interesting. Like you were talking about relative happiness. And I think that, you know, we probably don't really even have a good understanding of what happiness is. And as psychology progresses, I think it's very likely we'll get to a point where it turns out that, oh, it turns out this thing that we were talking about this happiness is actually like maybe five really distinct things that have nothing to do with each other or something like that. And and they may have, mm-hmm. you know, they may be caused by completely different things and we lump them together to some category in this, like our folk psychology, but you know, your moment to moment experience of pleasure or your assessment of your life. And then these things might have nothing to do with each other. And I think there's certainly the possibility that our, our natures or how we actually think about ourselves uh, may be off in some way. And I think, you know, Harari pointing out the myths and this sort of shared intersubjective realities that feel so concrete and real to us may actually just be this shared idea that they may not have a concrete existence is uh is an interesting and a scary one too
1: yeah okay so when i think about that it, it raises a question in my mind so this you know what you're talking about here is that this buddhist philosophy it kind of the core of the idea is that you're you're not the events that happen to you not the things that you know that happen to you good or bad but that you're also not your feelings right that they're just these feelings that you have and you can you know i think harari says something like you can release the need to chase you know the need to feel happy or the need to feel angry or to not feel sad or to not feel depressed or whatever they're just feelings um which to me seems that that buddhist idea seems very useful to me when we're talking about you know when i'm feeling depressed or i'm feeling sad or when i'm feeling you know it seems very useful when the feelings are negative um but when i think about the very best moments of my life they're often, the ones that I have the most vivid memories about, the ones that, that, that seem so special to me, are the ones that I have such strong emotions about. The ones that where I felt very surprised um, or, you know, where I feel incredibly emotionally engaged. There was this, this spike, this wave of emotion during that moment or during that memory that, that made it so memorable, that made it so unique amongst all the other moments that I've experienced in my life. And so recently I found myself thinking, well, maybe, you know, I I think a lot about like, well, what is the work that I'm doing? How can it be useful to people? How can it, you know, leave some kind of mark or make some small dent in my corner of the universe? How can it be valuable? And, uh, I, I've been thinking recently that perhaps the way to be valuable is to make people feel things to make it, it. It has to do with the level of emotion that someone can get from your work because it is that emotion that makes it memorable, that makes it unique, that makes it um, worthy of remembering throughout the rest of your life. And if that is true, then that means that perhaps your feelings are just feelings in the Buddhist sense, but they are also maybe the thing that assigns, ascribes meaning to our lives or some sense of purpose to a given moment. Um, So I find myself on on the negative end, I agree with this Buddhist or even like stoic philosophy of your feelings are just feelings release them you are not the events that happen to you you're also not the things that you feel but on the positive side i really want to embrace those emotions i think that perhaps that that is what makes a moment meaningful um and i don't know i haven't i haven't thought through that deeply or or uh, you know re Harari's passages on that uh in that context but I I do find myself feeling perhaps torn between the the positive and negative sides of well now, I don't
0: things. remember whether Harari in his book specifically makes this claim because I've also read some other books on a related topic that I might be uh, blending together here in the thesis so if someone can point out if I know he didn't actually say that then that's fine But I think we've been talking, this whole theme of our discussion, because it's captivated us both so much, is this idea of these shared myths, these intersubjective truths, or as you would prefer them, stories. And one of the things uh, that may very well be a story is your kind of sense of personal identity, or who you are. Um, That doesn't mean like you don't exist, Mm -hmm. that you're just, you know, that I think, therefore I am, isn't true. But the idea that um, you're kind of persisting through time and having a stable identity and a name and... Uh, background and a job and, you know, credentials and a, a religion and all these kind of things that we attribute to personal identity are the very kinds of myths that Harari is talking about, that they are uh, persistent kind of collective ideas. And, uh, you know, I was saying this activist idea, this um, Tree of Knowledge book I was reading, they kind of make the case that that is the only reality that we sort of have is this uh, created one that we we have that is not created in the sense that it's um, a false or a superstition because it does hew closely to reality. It does make us effective creatures to operate in this physical world, but that it's not representational in the sense that it, it's not taking things from the outside and representing them in your head in that objective way. It's rather just this kind of created idea that works really well. And um, and so I think about that when I'm, I'm hearing him talking about myths in a In a very constructive light like that these myths that we've created these shared social ideas are maybe our most powerful tool um another book is uh joseph heinrich's the secret of our success and he's taking kind of an anthropological view of things um he is i think a little bit less radical than harari but he basically makes the argument that human beings have triumphed over the other animals not because of our intelligence although we like to think of ourselves as vastly more intelligent as the other animals but because we have culture and other animals don't, that we are able to learn and coordinate on these kind of abstract ideas and additionally co- like have social learning that you can learn something and then I can easily copy that idea from you uh, rather than having to discover it on my own. And that this is what separates us from chimps and monkeys and other animals, and that from a from a just a purely individual standpoint, we're not actually that superior to them. And that's, I think, also another humbling idea that, Um, You know, I know Harari is, I'm pretty confident he is a a vegan and he talks a little bit about, you know, these sorts of ideas of animal welfare. And I know that he is also kind of skeptical of the idea that there is a large gulf between, you know, human species, the real victors of the planet and the other animal species that that we occupy, that we may be closer in our kind of intellectual um, gifts and consciousness than than might be first, uh, first seen that
1: actually makes sense to me
0: i mean just from an
1: evolutionary standpoint i i agree the secret of our success is another great book i mean you know Hen- uh, henrik is very big on um cultural evolution i mean that's basically what the whole book is about right and um but it makes sense to me that our ability to that like we wouldn't have had some massive genetic evolutionary shift from uh, the species that came before us. It doesn't make sense that, you know, for all of history, evolution has been a gradual and uh, incremental process. And then suddenly Homo sapiens comes along and it's like now a quantum leap. Um, but perhaps there was a, uh, a tool, um, if for lack of a better word, an ability that we evolved, that uh, this sharing of cultural knowledge, this ability to imitate and share knowledge quickly that that was like some kind of master key that even though it only took a small genetic shift allowed us to make a rapid and massive cognitive shift. Um, that seems that seems like a decent argument to me. Who's to say if that'll play out and actually be be true? But uh, it makes sense on a variety of well. Friends. On
0: that note, I'd like to uh, conclude our discussion of this book. Honestly, sapiens, we barely scratched the surface. We just talked about one particular theme in the book. It really covers a great deal. Uh, Yuval Harari is definitely a very interesting thinker and I think he'll challenge a lot of your preconceptions about how the world works and with that I'd also like to thank James Clear he is the author at jamesclear.com it is an excellent website it has tons of articles Uh, you know it's it's like my website but just better so you should just go to that website and get all your reading you know you can just (laughs) you can just skip over me
1: thanks Scott really appreciate it man thanks for having me on